verses 25 through 52. That's on page 978 of your Pew Bible, if that's what you're using. Uh, if you're just visiting with us for the first time, we're in the middle of a, se- of a series on the book of Ephesians. To each week, we've been opening up this letter of Paul's to the people of Ephesus and asking this question. What does the book of Ephesians teach us about what it means to become a community of grace? To become more of a community, community of grace? How does this book speak into our lives? And so this morning, um, we're going to be taking a look at this passage. You'll notice it's the same passage we were in last week, but looking at something different this morning. So before we come to this and read, let's pray and ask that the Lord would be gracious enough to open his word to us. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. And we come before you this morning from all kinds of places, thinking all kinds of things. Many of us distracted, some of us tired, discouraged. Some of us struggling to believe, some of us not sure that we ever have. But we are all in need of you. So we pray, Father, this morning that you would be gracious to us, that you would open up your word to us and us to your word, that you might speak to us and change us by your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So let's look at our text this morning again, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through chapter 5, verse 2. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now as I mentioned last week, we looked at the same passage and we... um, talked about our words, and as we've seen through the book of Ephesians, Paul, in this book, he's laid this foundation over the first half of the book about, all, about God's goodness to us in salvation, about God's absolute sovereign care of bringing a people to himself, of taking us from death to life, of bringing us into the life that's in Jesus and turning us into a whole new community of people. And as we've turned into the second half of the book, we've started to see that Paul then becomes very specific about what it means for us to live out this new life that's been given to us. Okay, Paul uses this image earlier in chapter 4 of, of us putting off the old self, this old life that we had. And then when we, he says that when we came to Christ, we put on a whole new life. We became entirely different and new people. And he's saying now, be like that. Be that new person that you've become. So last week we talked about our words. As God's new people, his new community, what does it mean for us to put off words of death and put on words of life? What does it mean for us no longer to speak as we spoke before we knew Jesus, but now speak in ways that build up and encourage each other? Now, in this same passage, intertwined with this is a discussion of anger. We talked about expressions of words last week, and what we're getting at this week actually kind of comes to the heart of what gives expression to our words. 
He attacks and tackles with us. What does it mean that we are often very angry people? What do we do with our anger? He goes on to tell us that if we're going to be God's new people, if we're going to live out this new life that he's put into us, then we're going to have to be people who deal with our anger. So here's the point this morning. The gospel is for angry people. The gospel is for angry people. And we're going to look at uh, three things the passage shows us. We're going, to, we're going to talk about anger that helps, anger that hurts, and forgiveness that heals. Okay, anger that helps, anger that hurts, and forgiveness that heals. Look, look with me in verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. Okay, is that jarring to you at all? Be angry and do not sin. Now, um, if you're reading the uh, English Standard Version as I'm reading from, that, that's what you're reading. If you're reading from the NIV, it says something a little bit different. It says, in your anger, do not sin. And somehow that sounds a little more palatable to us. Okay, now, that's a possible way to translate it. But the verb here for being angry, it's an imperative. It's a command, just like all the commands in this passage. It's full of imperatives and full of things that, that Paul says, do this and don't do this. And we kind of miss the force of it if we don't translate it this way. Be angry and do not sin. Now, it just sort of sounds counterintuitive, right? Paul's speaking to this group of believers and he's saying, be angry, as if we needed encouragement to do that. You know, most of us, we think about our anger and we think about something that at best we need to stifle, something that we need to try to manage, something that we need to try to get over. Okay, so it brings up the question for us first, what is, what is anger to begin with? Okay, what are, the, what are some of the images that come to mind when you think of anger? Okay, you see, you see a red face, maybe loud words, maybe for some of us violent acts. When we imagine anger, maybe we imagine a person who's been in our life. And we looked at that person and knew that they were an angry person. Now maybe when we look at the anger, when we, when we have an image of anger, we see the anger in our own lives. Expressions of anger. Now they could be... They could be very loud, or they could be very quiet. Anger plays out differently with all of us, but what it does do is stir something deep within us. But what is anger? Okay, there's a, a helpful, uh, helpful way maybe of looking at this. Um, David Pallison, a Christian counselor and theologian, he put it this way. He boils anger down to this. What is anger? And he said it's essentially this. It's saying, I am against that. Okay, that's what anger is. It's being against something. I am against that. It's the flip side of being for something. Okay, anger and pleasure are both moral judgments. When you look at something and you say, that's not the way it's supposed to be. I'm against that. You're, you're making an evaluation of something. Just like when we look at something and we say, that gives me great pleasure. We're looking at something and saying, that's something desirable. That's something good. We're making a judgment about it. And anger says, um, I see what's going on. I see that. And it's wrong. And I'm against that. Now, this is, gonna, this is just going to sound hard to us. Our God is an angry God. Our God's an angry God. If you read the Bible, you see that God's an angry God. Here's some of the things that he's angry about. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the prophets, we th see things like this. God is against, he's angry about, the oppression of the poor. God is angry about, he's against, the exploitation of the weak. God's angry about, he's against the enemies of his people. In fact, we see in scripture that God is against all sin. He's against anything that stands against his goodness and his glory and his rule in the world. He's against everything that mars the goodness of his creation. 
Now, immediately when we start thinking about God is an angry God, we have these very graphic images in our head of, of hell. A God who punishes wickedness. Now, we're not going to talk about hell today. But let me just ask you, when we think about this image of God as an angry God, is, it, is that right or is it wrong? Is it right that God would be angry? And let me just flip the question around this way against our emotional kind of gut reaction. Is it just possible that given the fallenness of our world, that if God weren't angry, we'd be in greater trouble? If God looks out at all the wrong in the world, all the injustice, all the oppression, all the pain, and he didn't care, if he didn't look at all of that, everything that mars his creation, if he didn't look at that and say, I'm against that. If he didn't do that, then we'd be standing in hell right now. Because that's what our world would be. But we have a God who is against all that's wrong. And the truth is, that is good news for a broken, hurting world. That we can look out in the world and say truthfully from Scripture, God is against all of this. It's not the way he made it to be. It's not what he's redeeming it into. We have a God who's angry about things that, should be ang- that we should be angry about. I'm going to point out two examples about the anger of Jesus. Listen to this from Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Jesus walks into a synagogue on a Sunday, and he's going to heal someone who's been in pain. He says, again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. This is the Pharisees watching him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, the Pharisees, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus walks in and he sees someone in great need and pain. And what does he do? He acts to reverse that to heal that, to bring wholeness. And he looks at the Pharisees, the religious leaders that are condemning him, and he's angry because he says, you don't understand the spirit of the law. You don't understand what I came for. Second picture of the anger of Jesus. In John chapter 11, Jesus hears that his friend Lazarus is dying. And so he waits in the town where he is for a few extra days, and he shows up after Lazarus has died in time for the funeral. And... uh, Jesus sees everyone in sorrow. In verse 33 of chapter 11 of John, he says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Okay, deeply moved in his spirit. Another way of translating this is he was indignant. He was railing against what had just happened. He was angry. Why? Jesus steps into the situation, and he sees his friend Lazarus dead, and he's angry. Because death is wrong. Because we weren't meant to die. Because death is a twisting of creation. And he says this is wrong. And he says that in spite of the fact that he knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's angry over the destruction that death brings. Now, for believers, is there comfort in death? Of course. But that comfort is not that death is an okay thing, but there's something beyond death. The very hope that Christ brings is that there's actually resurrection. But he says, Jesus came not to put a stamp of endorsement on death, but to reverse it. And he looks at death and he's angry. See, anger is something that's essential to God. He's angry about things that are wrong. And he calls us to be the same thing. John Stott says, 
There is such a thing as Christian anger, and too few Christians either feel or express it. Indeed, when we fail to do so, we deny God, we damage ourselves, and we encourage the spread of evil. Okay, there's John Stott. Here's Malcolm X. Usually when people are sad, they don't do anything. They just cry over their condition. But when they get angry, they bring about a change. There is something right about that quote. That when we see what is wrong around us, there is a right anger that says, I'm against that. You can think of examples. Um, I've used this before. Some of you are familiar with the Ministry of International Justice Mission. And it's a group of Christians who are lawyers that go into other countries to help local governments deal with corruption and abuse that are happening in their own country. And they go into places in Asia, for example, and break up child prostitution rings. They get the authorities involved and help give them the power to actually counteract real evil in the world. Because they know that God's an angry God who cares about that kind of injustice. It's why here in our town we're interested in being and starting a mercy team because God cares about the struggles and injustice in our own town. Paul says, "Be angry, okay? Be against the things that God is against." This verse is actually a quote from Psalm 4, 4, Psalm 4, verse 4, where David is lamenting the fact that he's being slandered by his enemies. And he's speaking words of comfort to others who are being oppressed. And he says, be angry, but do not sin. Now, here's the thing, though. He says, be angry, but then he gives us three limits immediately on our anger. In verse 26 and 27, the first thing he says, well, three guardrails. Okay, if you imagine yourself driving over a bridge, there are these guardrails on the side to keep you from going off the edge. And Paul says, here are the guardrails for your anger. Three things. First, he says, do no sin. Okay, be angry, but do not sin. Do no wrong. Don't go against God's purposes and his character. Okay, so here's some questions to ask when you find yourself angry. What is really motivating me here? Is it the wrong that I see or is it just perceived? Am I addressing the wrong itself or am I acting to protect myself? John Stott says we have to make sure our anger is free from injured pride, spite, malice, animosity, and the spirit of revenge. And here's the danger of righteous anger. It's so addictive. And it feels so powerful to have this feeling of there is something that's wrong and I'm reacting against it. Paul says to us in that, do not sin. Now, the second thing he says is, do not let the sun go down on your anger. He's giving us a duration for our anger, a time limit. What is he saying? Anger isn't meant to fester. It's not meant to get into our souls and uh, entwine itself in our life. It's meant to be resolved Okay, now you've heard this advice maybe given to married couples. Okay, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't go to sleep at night until you've resolved the anger that's between you. And that's great advice for married couples. Paul's saying it's not just for married couples. It's for all of us as God's community. He says, don't let the anger go down on your sin. Um, keep short accounts with one another. Don't hang on to your bitterness. Don't hang on to your anger. And then the third thing he says is, do not give the devil any opportunity. Verse 27 Again, something we mentioned last week with our speech. It's a sobering reminder that we really do have spiritual enemies. Paul's going to go on at the end of Ephesians chapter 6 to spend 10 verses talking about what does it mean for us to resist the devil. And here he says, don't go along with his purposes. Don't let anger fester in such a way that the devil has an opportunity to use that to destroy the community around you. 
Okay, there is an, there's an anger that helps. There's a right anger. But now look at verse 31, an anger that hurts. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Okay, Paul's just gotten finished saying, be angry. And now he says, don't be angry. Okay, you know, what, what do we do with that? Is Paul possibly confused? Is he contradicting himself? Or does Paul know what God knows? He knows our hearts. And he knows that there is a right anger. And he knows that there's a very wrong anger that gets into our lives as well. And the truth is, this is where most of us live most of the time. Right? The anger that comes in where Paul says, you need to, be, you, you need to turn from that. It's the anger that says, I'm against that, and I'm going to make you pay for that. Right? And this is everything from the minor irritations of life. It's getting stuck in traffic. It's having people do the great wrongs to us in our life. We, we're people who suffer from disordered anger. Okay, it fits in with other New Testament uh, comments about anger. Think about James 1, 19 through 20. James says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Or Colossians 3.8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Paul's list here in verse 31, it covers the whole gamut of anger. Okay, He's got an entire vocabulary for it. Um, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. Uh, I'm told, I've read, that Eskimos have like 22 different words for snow. Okay, they live in snow. If you live in Williamsburg, you don't have 22 different words for snow. You know, there's wet snow and dry snow. There's lots of snow, which we never get. There's a little bit of snow. There's a wintry mix. Okay, that's pretty much it for our snow vocabulary. But the Eskimos, they live in snow. And they know the different kinds. And Paul says, we all live in anger. And let's talk about the shades of anger. And he goes through this whole list that encompasses all of our wrestling with the issue of anger in our life. He's got a nuanced vocabulary for anger. Now here's the thing though. When we read this list, we think, well, I mean, that's sort of extreme. If you're like me and you grew up in the era of the Incredible Hulk on TV, then you, you remember the story. Uh, there's this, this man, Bruce Banner, who is, through no fault of his own, he was uh, exposed to gamma rays and it changed him. And So now each episode of The Incredible Hulk, he'll walk, he's this drifter, he walks into town and he'll meet this family and, and something's going wrong. And at some point in the episode, he'll turn to someone else in the show and he'll say, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry and you know it's coming. Okay, so later in the show, he turns into this huge green monster that just wrecks havoc around him. And the end of every episode has Bruce Banner back to his normal self, walking down the dusty road out of town because this anger which has maybe helped somebody has also destroyed something. It's, it's kept him on the run. It's pushed him out again. And Paul's whole point in this passage is, just like Bruce Banner found, that anger destroys community and it pushes you away. But we read this list and say, that just sounds too extreme to me. Um, it's too extreme, certainly, to be describing me. But here's your, here's your next thought. But, you know, that's a perfect description of fill-in-the-blank. <laughs> my husband, my wife, my kids, my coworkers, my angry boss, my angry neighbor, 
This fits them perfectly. And here's the problem. Whenever we hear a sermon, when I hear a sermon, any sermon, we think this just sheds perfect light on somebody else's sin. (laughs) And what we don't hear is that Paul is aiming this at us, that Paul assumes that we are people, that you are a person, that I'm a person who deals with destructive anger. Now, for some of us, it's very loud and on the, sur- on the surface. Look at some of Paul's li- list. Wrath, clamor, slander. Okay, this is battleship anger. Okay, battleships are huge and imposing. They have very large guns, and you can see them off in the horizon coming your way. When the battleship comes, you know that you are in trouble. And you know people like this, and some of us are people like this. Battleship anger. Now, some of us, though, some people, our anger lies below the surface, and it's not so much that, that people can even see it around you. It runs deep, and maybe we keep it um, hidden. Uh, you might not even be able to put your finger on it to yourself, but Paul has words for this, too. Bitterness, malice, maybe things that are in the undercurrent of our lives. Some people have battle, battleship anger. This is submarine anger. Down below the surface, it's hard for others to detect. And sometimes you don't even know it to the last second when you suddenly see the torpedoes coming your way, right? Are you somebody who blows up or are you somebody who gets very quiet? Are you somebody whose anger is on the surface or somebody whose anger runs deep and doesn't come up very often maybe, but, it, but you know it when it does? Paul says this about all of this anger. He says, put it away. Walk away from it. He says, this is a part of your old self. When you came to Christ, you put on a new self. He says, when you're angry like this, it's looking back at the person you used to be and not living in light of the person that Christ has created you to be now. It doesn't fit you anymore. See, his whole exhortation here is based on the fact that God has done something to us now. It's not just good moral advice for all of humanity. Paul's giving us an exhortation that presupposes that we're a new humanity, that presupposes we're people who have actually come to know Jesus, the one who puts on this new self, puts it on us. So let me ask you this question. Who are you, who are you angry with? What are the relationships in your life where you struggle with anger, whether that's an anger that flares up harsh angry words, glaring looks, or it's an anger that's the the under-the-surface simmer, or anger that's cold and indifferent, an entirely different way to be angry. Who are you angry with? Well, Paul says, put it away, give it up, walk away from it, stop living in it. There's an anger that helps, an anger that hurts, and then there's also forgiveness that heals. Look at verses 32 through 432 through 52. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In everything that Paul's done in this passage, he's, he's, there's been two sides to everything. Put this off and put this on. Last week, put off that corrupting speech and put on speech that builds up. And here he says... Put off anger and put on something else instead. See, there can't be a vacuum in your life. You can't simply say, okay, I'm no longer going to be an angry person. I'm just going to turn away from anger. Okay? There's, you can hear the sucking sound in your life as you try to pull that away from your relationships. What, what's going to fill in the gap? Something has to rush in to fill that or the anger is going to come right back. And Paul says that here's what you need to put on. Kindness, tenderheartedness, 
forgiveness. But here's the thing. Only the Holy Spirit brings about real kindness. Only the Holy Spirit brings about real tenderheartedness, enables real forgiveness. Uh, the kids in our church, I can vouch at least for the two-year-olds, uh, are in the middle of learning Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And here's what that says. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What's he saying? Kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. That it's the fruit of a life that's been invaded by the Spirit and has now lived in line with the Spirit. Okay, we can't do this in and of ourselves. We need the work of God in our lives to make us kind and tender-hearted and forgiving. These adjectives, these ways of life, kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness, they're an entirely new direction, an entirely new tact that our life takes because of Jesus. And what are, what are they? They're a choice to give the people that we are angry with exactly what they don't deserve. To respond to what has been done to us with forgiveness, tenderheartedness, not to turn away from a wrong, but actually to forgive it. Not to ignore something that's happened, but to take the hit instead, instead of inflicting the hit on someone else. See, the foundation for our kindness, our tenderheartedness, our forgiveness, what does Paul tell us right here? Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, this is the same point we made last week. What's ultimately going to change our speech? To know the one who speaks words of forgiveness into our life. What is it that's going to change us from being angry people? What's going to allow us to lay it down? To be kind, to be tenderhearted, to forgive. Paul says only this. Knowing that we are a people who have been forgiven ourselves. You know, if we said, as we said earlier, God's a God who hates injustice, oppression, everything that mars his creation. If he's holy and he hates all sin, if he's against that, then he must be against us because we perpetuate that. Many of you are familiar with this, but G.K. Chesterton, Christian apologist and thinker, um, the Times of London asked the question to their readers, what, it, what is wrong with the world? And Chesterton wrote back, I am. But here's the thing. That's not the end of the story. God's anger against all that is wrong and is twisted is not the end of the story. But God acts towards us in Jesus in kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness. His anger doesn't ignore all that is wrong but it brings actual, real forgiveness. And Paul says the only way we're going to be people who forgive is if we are people who know that forgiveness as well. We talked about a couple of examples of Jesus' anger. Here are a couple of examples of Jesus' forgiveness. We saw, Paul, we saw Jesus in the middle of the Pharisees and religious leaders wanting to kill him because of healing this man on the Sabbath day. And at the end of that, if you remember that, bit from Mark. It says they go off to begin plotting his death. And one day, in the end, they win. And there Jesus is on the cross. And what are among his last words? He looks around and he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. Was he angry at what was happening to him? Of course. Is he against that? In one sense, of course. The greatest injustice ever the only one who doesn't deserve that kind of punishment receiving it. But what does he do? 
bring a host of angels to rescue him? Does he bring the wrath of God? What does he do? He brings the forgiveness and healing of God. That in that moment, he says, forgive them. They know not what they do. Right before the actual crucifixion, we see Peter, one of Jesus' most ardent followers, turning away and denying Jesus three times. On the night of Jesus' greatest suffering and sorrow, he turns away from him and abandons him. And after the resurrection, there's a scene at the end of the book of John where Jesus comes back to Peter, and three times he asks him, Do you love me? And he says, Feed my sheep. What's Jesus doing there? He's reinstating Peter. He's taking this man who walked away from him, and he's drawing him back. Was he angry that he was betrayed at his death? Is that worth being angry about? Of course. But what does Jesus do? He extends forgiveness to him and he draws him back. He says, feed my sheep, love my sheep, care for them. Sounds a lot like verse 2 of chapter 5 here. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now somewhere in the back of our minds we're thinking, yeah, but that's Jesus. Of course he forgives that way. But here's the rub of this passage. That's exactly Paul's point. Yes, that's Jesus. And you have been forgiven by him. Now go forgive like him. You are people who have received forgiveness. Now go be people of forgiveness. Okay, this text this morning, it tells us the gospel is for angry people. People who blow up. People who simmer. People who freeze others with their indifference. This gospel is for you. Jesus, angry at sin giving himself for sinful, angry people in order to make them entirely new, into a new people, a new community, one that's now marked no longer by anger but by forgiveness, one that's marked now no longer by division but by healing. What's it going to mean for us to become a people of grace? What's it going to mean for us to become more a people of grace? What's going to mean that we are a people who know the goodness of God, who know the forgiveness that reaches down into the middle of the real stuff of our lives and that brings real forgiveness and healing to our own actual residual anger, all the stuff that we still wrestle with, a forgiveness that reaches down into the very darkest parts of our lives, into our disordered anger, a forgiveness and love that brings light and healing and hope and real change, changing us from a people who are lost in our anger into a people who know the expansive freedom of forgiveness. Forgiveness received, and now forgiveness given. Let's pray. Father, we do confess that in many ways we're an angry people. Some of us to a great degree and some of us to a lesser, but our anger pops up. Lord, we pray that more and more you would continue your good work of making us, remaking us into the image of Jesus. Father, may we know the depth of that forgiveness and may it change us that we might forgive each other, that we might put away all bitterness and wrath and malice and anger, that we might be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving because, Jesus, you have forgiven us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.